sermon comes from John 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Appreciate Bryson reading that scripture for us. I've known Bryson's family for three generations back. And as I think back over the years, <laughs> it's sure good to see all of you this morning. Seriously, I'm, I'm delighted at your presence. And as Ray said, if you're joining us online, if you're here in the building, we appreciate so very much your, your interest in spiritual things. Thank you, Dalton, for leading us in our singing this morning. Fine job. We appreciate our, our uh, talented college students and you guys being back on campus, and we're just delighted that you're here. I've talked to Andrew some about... Uh, uh, this new class of students are coming in this fall that he's excited I think it's been a great recruiting year we've got some five-star students that have come on campus and and spiritually speaking of course and and we're delighted to have all of you here and hope that you'll make University Church your your church home the poet has said you know you don't have to tell how you live each day you don't have to tell if you work or play a tried true barometer serves in its place however you live it shows in your face. The faults, the deceit will not stay, that you wear in your heart will not stay inside where it first got to start. For sinew and blood are but a thin veil of lace. What you wear in your heart, you wear in your face. If your life is unselfish and for others you live, for not what you can get, but how much you can give. If you live close to God in his infinite grace, you don't have to tell it. It shows in your face. I believe there's something to that. And I've been watching the news, and I've noticed that there's a shortage of a lot of things in, in our country and in our world. And I know that right now, if you've gone to the gas pump recently, you know that apparently there's some kind of shortage going on there. Don't ask me to explain that, but I know, do know that the prices have gone up. And you can go in stores, and you can find that the, the supply chain has been aborted at some point, and so some of the things that we normally would be able to purchase are no longer available to us. Let me say in, in the outset of this study this morning that I believe that in our world and in particular in our nation that there is a shortage of joy. And I mean contagious, outrageous, courageous joy. And if you'll notice in the text, John 15 verse 11 that Bryson read a moment ago, Jesus promised to his disciples that he would not only give them his joy, but then he secondarily said, and that your joy might be full or might be complete. Now, Lord willing, if the Lord delays his return and I'm still here, three weeks from now, I'm going to look at that passage a little bit more closely. But this morning, I want us to think about that subject of how that the Lord promised his disciples that they could live their lives with joy. And that's because when, when that kind of joy comes on board the ship of our lives, it brings some good things with it. For example, it brings enthusiasm for life. It brings a determination to hang in there even through the difficulties and the problems and the troubles of life. And it certainly brings with it a strong desire to be an encouragement to other people. I've noticed that, and I'm sure that you have too, that it's the joy-filled people who are the real encouragement to those around them. And so those kinds of qualities make our voyage through life bearable when, when it hits the open seas and when we encounter those high waves of hardship that tend to uh, demoralize and sometimes even to paralyze us. 
I'm just saying that there's nothing better than a joyful attitude when we face the challenges that life throws at us. And that's not the kind of reaction that the world would anticipate, but it is the kind of reaction that God would anticipate because he is the one who has given us this, this joy. And I hope that each of us deeply appreciates that. Unfortunately, our country seems to have lost its spirit of, of fun and laughter. I, I read in one of my books just the other day about a Brazilian student who came to America to study in one of our universities. And he said what amazed him most about most Americans was, and I'm quoting now, their lack of laughter. He said they're not joy-filled people. And, and I really can't refute that criticism. When was the last time you laughed? And I mean really belly laughed. Just look around and you'll see all the bad news. You'll see the long faces. You'll see the heavy hearts everywhere you look, even in places of worship. Tragically, I might say, especially in places of worship. I've been in some churches that were just cemeteries with lights. How about you? I've been in some congregations and been a part of some worship services elsewhere that I walked away wondering who died. Because it was like going to a funeral. And I know that the obvious answer to that is that, that Jesus died. But then we also need to be reminded that he rose again on the third day. Which brings us back to our theme of who stole our joy. Much of today's popular music that's considered by many to be really the heartbeat of the nation's conscience. Promotes misery and sorrow and despair. And if sex and violence are not the pulsating themes of a new film. Then some expression of unhappiness seems to be. For example, just to give you one quick example of that, when was the last time that you read a book or saw a movie that portrayed a couple that, number one, was married, number two, that was married to each other, number three, that was happy about being married to each other? That's very difficult to find in the entertainment media. Newspapers thrive on tragedies and calamities, on lost joys, on accidents, and certainly on pandemics. In fact, you don't have to be a journalism major to know that if it bleeds, it leads. The same could be said of the news on TV. Even the weather reports give their primary attention to the storms, the droughts, and the blizzards. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, it's no longer called the weather station. It's the storm center. Tomorrow, partly cloudy with a chance of rain, never mostly clear with an 80% chance of sunshine. It seems that our whole world, even our entertainment and even our news media, are devoting themselves to helping people to understand that we ought to be lower than a snake's belly in, in a wagon rut in Death Valley, that there is no joy to life, and that there's no way that you can be in your right mind and have the kind of joy that Jesus promised to give us in our text in John 15:11. Now, unfortunately, that long-faced, heavy-hearted approach in life has invaded the ranks of Christianity, and I think we all acknowledge that at some intuitive level. You visit most congregations today, you search for signs of happiness and sounds of laughter, and many times you'll walk away disappointed. Joy, which ought to be, in my mind, the gigantic secret of Christianity, is conspicuous by its absence. And let me just go ahead and say, I find that inexcusable. The one place on earth where life's burdens ought to be lighter, where our faces ought to reflect genuine enthusiasm for life, and where attitudes ought to be uplifting and positive is the place where that is least likely to be found. After all, as I've many times said, our past is forgiven, our present is meaningful, and our future is secure. Why in the world, as Peter expressed it, should we not have joy 
inexpressible. Now, I know that some critics will be quick to point out that, that our times don't lend themselves to that kind of easygoing philosophy of life. And they would ask, under the circumstances, how, how, can, can, how can I be anything but pessimistic? Which, of course, then I would reply, what are you doing under the circumstances? Correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of Scripture is that God has called his people to live above the circumstances. We need more Christians today who are thermostats and not just thermometers reflecting the conditions of the room. I read a survey not too long ago that indicated that among those who are, are, are searching for a mate in our nation, and 90% of Americans will eventually marry at some point in their lives, but among those who are searching for a mate, the preponderance of people said that they are looking for someone who has a sense of humor. That was the second quality only behind a sense of responsibility. That probably doesn't surprise anyone. Because anyone who's been married for more than six minutes realizes how important a sense of humor is in coalescing that relationship in, in the marriage union. So outright, outrageous joy and a sense of humor enlightens our discernment. And it guards us from taking everything that comes down the pike too seriously and I mean especially ourselves. In fact, I insist that by, by remaining lighthearted and optimistic and by refusing to allow our intensity to gain the mastery of our minds, that we can be much more objective and we can see the world in the big picture as God would have us to see it. Ogden Nash is a fellow who has written a lot, and some of you perhaps have heard that name. Ogden Nash believed that point so strongly that he claimed that if the German people had had any kind of sense of humor, then they would never have let Adolf Hitler deceive them and seize power. And then he goes on to explain. Nash said the first time they saw some fella come goose-stepping down the street and raising a stiff arm to shout, Heil Hitler, they would have fallen over in side-splitting laughter. I believe he's right. You know, people who faithfully live above their circumstances, and by that I mean literally filled with faith, that allows them to live above the circumstances of their life and to be able to act better than we feel at many moments in our lives, usually possess that kind of well-developed sense of humor. Because in the final analysis, that's what gets them through, along with, of course, based upon their faith, gets them through just about, just about everything. Heard about a man who had that kind of joy for living, and he had a zest for life, and, and, and that was one of the reasons why he was invited to speak in Chicago at a weekend conference. Well, then after he spoke that night and, and had a number of things to say that were humorous in nature, uh, one of the ladies came up to him after the session. They, they, they introduced himself to one another, and they began to share some humorous anecdotes. In fact, she was so impressed by the man who spoke that she later wrote him a little letter and, and thanked him for, for adding a little joy to an otherwise ultra-serious conference. And the thing was, this was a conference that was held by and for Christians, and yet there was hardly a smile seen anywhere in the place, and she noted that in her letter. Well, her note was really a creative expression of one who had learned to balance the dark side of life with a bright glow of laughter, and, and, and her, her, her letter reflected that. And among, among other things, she wrote this, and I'm quoting. She said, humor has done a lot to help me in my spiritual life and development. How could I have raised, listen carefully, how could I have raised 12 children starting when I was 32 if I had not had a sense of humor? That's a really good question. She goes on to say, 
After your talk last night, I was enjoying some relaxed moments with friends I met there. I told them I got married at 31. And yet, despite that fact, I was never worried about getting married. I left my future in God's hands. But I must tell you, every night, I hung a pair of men's pants on my bed, and I knelt down to pray this prayer. Father in heaven, hear my prayer, and grant it if you can. I've hung a pair of trousers here. Please fill them with a man. (laughs) The very next Sunday... The preacher who received that letter shared it with the congregation, and they also enjoyed it immensely. But he said even from the pulpit, he could see various reactions to that letter from people in the audience. He noticed a different reaction by a father and his teenage son. And he noticed the dad laughed out loud while the son seemed preoccupied when he read that portion of the letter. Well, on that particular Sunday, the mother of the family stayed at home because they had a sick daughter. Obviously, neither the father nor the son told mom about that uh, reading of the letter in church that day because when they got home anyway, because a couple of weeks later, the preacher received this note from the mom. This letter said, Dear Chuck, I'm wondering if I should be worried about something. It has to do with our son. For the last two weeks, I've noticed that before our son turns out the light and goes to sleep at night, that he hangs a woman's swimsuit over the foot of his bed. Should I be concerned about this? Chuck assured her that she had nothing to worry about. And by the way, time has, has lapsed, and I'm pleased to announce that young man is now married, so maybe the swimsuit idea works. Perhaps you find yourself among those in the if-only group. A moment's reflection, I think, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You say that you could laugh and enjoy life if only you had more money, or if only you had more talent, if only you were more beautiful, if only you had a better job that was higher paying and not so much pressure. Let me, for a moment, if I may, challenge those excuses, because that's exactly what they are. Just as more money never made anyone generous, And more talent never made anyone more grateful. More of anything never made anyone joyful. This is something that God has told us how to attain and obtain in our lives. How that we can have joy inexpressible. How we can have that promise fulfilled in our lives when Jesus told his disciples, I've come that you may have my joy and that your joy might be complete. That's a secret that God has told us, and it's right here, black ink on white paper, and we need to be sharing that secret with others and helping them to understand that this really is the kind of life that God would have us to live here. We're not just grinning and bearing. We're not just making it through life. We're not just surviving, folks. We're thriving because of what God has done for us, and and most of that is centered around this table where we just observed the Lord's Supper and and we were reminded of Jesus' sacrifice on that cross when he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that begins our, our journey of joy. And it helps us to appreciate every day of our lives when we wake up the immense number of blessings, just as God expressed it so well a moment ago, how we are a blessed people. 
And I don't just mean materially and monetarily. We are blessed in every way. The problem is we live in a world where we set the bar so high, the standards are so high, that no one can ever meet those standards in terms of what it takes to make me happy. So please, don't be a part of the if-only group. Just understand and come to appreciate and thank God every day for his many blessings. There was a lady by the name of Jane Canfield who in a magazine called Quote Unquote Magazine certainly agrees with that premise. Here's what she said. Again, I'm quoting. Miss Canfield wrote, The happiest people are rarely the richest or the most beautiful or even the most talented. Happy people do not depend on excitement and fun supplied by externals. They enjoy the fundamental, often very simple, things of life. They waste no time thinking that other pastures are greener, and they do not yearn for yesterday or tomorrow. They have learned to savor the moment. They are glad to be alive. They are enjoying their work, their families, and the good things around them. They are adaptable. They bend with the wind. They adjust to the changes in their times and enjoy the contests of life and feel themselves in harmony with the world. Their eyes are turned outward. They are aware, compassionate, and most of all, they have the capacity to love, end quote. Now, that's not Bible, but I think it's a biblical concept. And I think that perhaps she got her idea from Scripture, because God is the author of joy. Now, I don't mean that we need to go around with a smile plastered on our face, east coast to west coast, all the time. I understand that that simply is not possible. But without exception, people who consistently laugh do so in spite of and not because of anything. And if you think about that for a moment, I think that you'll agree. They pursue joy rather than waiting for it to knock on their door in the middle of the day. And that kind of infectiously joyful believer really has no trouble convincing other people around them that Christianity is real and that Christ can, in fact, transform a person's life from the inside out. On the other hand, the person who acts like they were baptized in vinegar and weaned on a dill pickle finds it impossible to give that kind of Christianity away. It's time that we had joy. It's time even in a pandemic that we expressed our appreciation to a loving God for the fact that he loves us, he loves the whole world, he wants everyone to be saved, and he wants what is best for each one of us. In fact, I go so far as to say that joy is, is the flag that flies above the castle of their hearts, announcing to everyone that the king is still on his throne. Now, in the last few minutes of this study, let me introduce you to a man who smiled in spite of there once lived a man who became a Christian as an adult, and he'd left the security and the popularity of his former career as an official religious leader. He was a Pharisee, and he did all of that and left all of that and the reputation that came with it for one simple reason, because he had made the determination that he was going to follow Jesus. And the persecution that became his companion throughout the remaining years of his life was just the beginning of his woes. He was misunderstood, he was misrepresented, he was maligned, and yet still, he pressed on joyfully. And on top of all that, he suffered from a physical ailment that was so severe that he referred to it as a thorn in the flesh. And it was possibly an intense form of migraine that revisited him on a regular basis. At least that's what some have conjectured. In reality, we don't know what his thorn in the flesh was. 
We just know that it bothered him a great deal and that he prayed three times that it would be removed. Now already by now you know I'm talking about Saul of Tarsus, later known as the great apostle Paul. And although he wasn't one to dwell on his past difficulties or his ailments, the the apostle did take time to record at least a partial list of them in his second letter to to his friends and brothers in Corinth. Got your Bible or your your device? Turn for a moment to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's take a look at a few verses where Paul says, if you think you've got it bad, just listen to some of the things that I've experienced. 2 Corinthians 11, I'm starting with verse 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. From the Jews, five times, I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times, I was beaten with rods, and once I was stoned. Three times, I was shipwrecked. A night and a day, I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, or perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. You, you get the idea that Paul has, left, has led a perilous life. And then he says in verse 27, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things which comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches, and sometimes as a preacher I have to wonder if that last item perhaps even superseded all the other things that Paul had here listed. And and although the things that I've just read are probably just a tip of the iceberg, and it was enough hardship for, for a dozen people, Paul's journey got even more difficult as time went on. And if you know anything about his life and the letters that he wrote, you know that. And finally he was arrested. He was placed under the constant guard of Roman soldiers to which he was chained for two years. His crime? Preaching the gospel. And while he was allowed to remain in his own rented quarters, those are the exact words of Acts 28 verse 30. That just means kind of a modified version of house arrest. The restrictions must have been so difficult for Paul, who had grown accustomed, of course, to being able to travel around and having the freedom to set his own agenda. And all of a sudden, here he is under house arrest, and he's chained to a Roman soldier. And yet not once, not once do we find Paul ever losing his patience and ever throwing a fit about what life had served up. Never did he sing, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Never did he claim to God, why in the world am I trying to preach your message and yet you let all of these things happen to us? In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas were in, in, in prison there, in jail again in Philippi, and how that they were singing praises to God at midnight and the other prisoners were listening to them. Instead, Paul saw his circumstances as an opportunity to be able to make Christ known as he made the best of his situation. I want to be more like Paul, don't you? I mean, if, if, we, could just, if we could just take this attitude and work on it and develop it more and more in, in our day. And not only would we enjoy life more, but more people would be attracted, I'm convinced, to Christianity and want a little bit of what we have. Take a quick look, if you will, at a letter with a surprising theme. Now, interestingly, Paul wrote several letters during those years of house arrest. It's for the obvious reason that we call them the prison epistles. And one of them was addressed to a group of Christians who lived in the city of Philippi. 
And it's really an amazing letter. And it's made even more remarkable by its recurring theme, which is, no surprise by now, joy. Now remember, he's in prison, at least under house arrest, chained to a soldier, and yet he's writing a letter whose theme is joy. Now think about that, written by a man who'd known that kind of excruciating pain and hardship that we just talked about. Living in this restricted setting, chained to a Roman soldier, and this letter to the Philippian Christians just resounds with joy. You know, attitudes of joy and contentment are woven through the 104 verses of this letter like silver threads. Rather than, than wallowing in self-pity, which he could have done, or, or calling on his friends to help him to escape, or at the very least to find relief from those restrictions, Paul sent a surprisingly light-hearted message to his friends in Philippi. And on top of all that, time and again, he urged the Philippian Christians to be people of joy themselves. That just blows me away. Let me show you, as we end this study, how the, this, this same theme uh, resurfaces in each of the chapters. We're just going to touch on the four chapters very quickly. When Paul, when Paul prayed for the Philippian Christians, he had a smile on his face. I know that because of how he starts the letter. Look at verses 3 and 4 of Philippians chapter 1. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you. So when he prayed for them, he prayed with joy. He, he said that, and he goes on record as having said that. And then when he, he compared staying on earth to, to leaving and, and then going to be with Jesus, he, he was still joyful. L look at verses 21, and your outline probably says 25. I want to read down through verse 26. For me, Paul writes, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, and yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. By the way, did you notice that? When he's talking about whether he lives or dies, at the end of verse 22, he says, what I shall choose, I cannot tell. He's basically saying, when I'm going to let these guys execute me, I haven't decided yet. I love that. He's still in control. Why? Because his God is still in control. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. That's good stuff. And then when he encouraged them to work together in harmony, that there be unity among them and no division, his own joy intensified as he envisioned that happen. Check out chapter 2, first two verses. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Paul's just asking those Christians, you know what would make me supremely happy? It's to know that you guys are getting along that you're working in harmony, and that you genuinely love each other. And then when he mentioned sending a friend to them, he urged them to receive this man joyfully. I'm still in chapter 2, skip down to verse uh, 25. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger 
but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I send him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice and may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness. Some versions actually say with all joy, and and hold such men in esteem. And then... When he had communicated the core of his message to the Corinthian or to the Philippian Christians here, he wanted them to to, uh, to hear that message from him personally, and, and he was saying, I, "I really want to be there and to be able to give this to you eyeball to eyeball, but I can't." But when he did that, guess what? He he was full of he was full of joy. That comes as no surprise. Look at chapter three, verse one. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious. But for you, it is safe. Re- rejoice in the Lord. And, and when he was drawing his letter to a close, he returned to that same message that ran throughout this letter. When he said in chapter 4, verse 4, you know the passage, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, just in case they had missed the point. I want you, he, he repeated it. I want you to understand that there's a reason for your rejoicing every day of your lives. And then finally, when Paul called to mind their, their concern for his welfare, the joy about which he writes is, in my opinion, one of the most upbeat passages that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. This is the last place I want us to look. Verse 10, chapter 4, beginning, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. Some of us need to take verse 11 home and chew on it, don't we? I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you have shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again to my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I, speak, I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full having received from Epaphroditus the thing sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Can you imagine how those Philippian Christians felt when they received that letter? Don't you know that they received a joy transfusion by reading these 104 verses? Their joy had to have increased to an all-time high. And they'd gotten that transfusion of joy from someone that they dearly loved and respected, and, and, and which must have been all the more appreciated as they considered the circumstances from which Paul was writing this letter. Here's a man in prison writing a letter that is infused with joy. If he, in that awful, confining situation, could be so positive and so full of encouragement and so, so affirming, certainly those living on the outside, on the other side of the bars, could live with joy as well. That was the conclusion that Paul wanted them to come to. 
I'm just saying that the first thing that you and I need to do in 2021, those of us who are already disciples of King Jesus, is to remember that we are right now living the abundant life that Jesus promised to his people in John 10 and verse 10. And that we can share that joy and that abundant life and that meaning and that purpose and that happiness with others. Because that's what the Lord wanted us to do. Go preach the good news to every creature. And those are our marching orders. But folks, the first thing we need to do is get squared away on where our joy comes from. Number one, do you have any? Do you need a joy transfusion this morning? You can get it just by knowing that you're in a right relationship with God. And if you're not a child of God this morning and you need to repent of past sins, confess courageously that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, and would wish for us to baptize you into Christ where you'll contact his redeeming blood, then the gospel call is yours while we stand and while we sing this song.